0: I'm Lauren and I'm a veterinarian.
1: I'm JJ and I'm a
0: veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high functioning anxiety. Welcome everybody to IntroVets podcast. <laughs> Hello. <It>
1: was
0: tiny eat. <laughs> oh my goodness. It was so petite. It was <laughs> <pitty>. <laughs> So tiny. Well, today we have quite an episode for you. Mm. And it's Kind of hard to explain on the outset, so I think we're just going to, like, dive right in. Okay. JJ is going to tell us some crazy stories. All of these stories are true accounts. And a bananas.
1: On a warm spring day in 2012, a cat owner in Boston opened one of her apartment windows. She wanted to give her cat, Sugar, a four-year-old white domestic short-haired cat with a pink nose, some air while she was at work. Around lunchtime, the owner received a call from the Animal Rescue League of Boston who had Sugar in their care. The Animal Rescue League had gotten the owner's contact information from Sugar's microchip. The owner recalls a frightening thought that there was only one way Sugar could have gotten out of that apartment, and that was through the open 19th story window. It turns out that earlier in the morning, a resident on the second floor of the high-rise apartment building happened to look outside and saw a white cat falling through the air past her window. The resident rushed downstairs and found the cat resting on a soft patch of grass and mulch outside. The resident called the Animal Rescue League out of Boston, who came to pick up the cat and took her to a veterinarian. Sugar walked away from the 19th story fall with no broken bones or severe injuries. Besides some mild pulmonary contusions, Sugar was unharmed. (laughs) Do I need to say contusions again? (laughs) No.
0: (laughs) No, I'm... I'm like having a reaction. The reason that JJ is having to read all of these is because like all the hair is standing up on my arms and I'm getting a little teary. Poor sugar. Okay, but continue.
1: (laughs) Before going away on vacation for the July 4th weekend, a cat owner in New York City cracked a window in his Upper West Side apartment. On July 4th, the owner received a call from the cat sitter who could not find Gloucester, a black 16-year-old domestic short-haired cat. Anywhere in the apartment. Down in the apartment building's courtyard, another tenant and a security guard had found Gloucester. Some reports on the incident say the cat was unconscious when he was found, but the owner has denied this claim in other reports. Gloucester spent time in the ICU for neurologic signs, but recovered with supportive care. He did not sustain any broken bones or have any internal bleeding from the 20-story fall.
0: Oh my God. Okay, we have one more. You going to be okay? No, I don't think. When I was writing this episode, I was not okay. (laughs) Okay.
1: Oh, man. It's raining cats. Yep. No dogs, though. I don't think they can make it.
0: Well, we're going to talk about dogs. (laughs) There's a reason there's not many dog survival stories. They're not marked liquid.
1: (laughs) In late May of 2009, a cat owner in lower Manhattan opened her apartment window approximately six inches her cat a tabby named lucky wandered out into the ledge
0: why you gotta name the cat that
1: i know right <laughs> okay. you're just that's you're setting it up for failure a window washing crew was working on the building across the street and began taking photos of the cat just before he slipped and fell 20 fucking six stories
0: 26 20 26, f- 26 stories
1: that's why i added the fucking because damn the cat landed on his feet in a lower apartment balcony The entire incident was captured in a series of photographs by the window-washing crew. The cat was briefly hospitalized, then discharged without any major issues.
0: And those photos are online, like you can find them. I cannot look at them, Mm. clearly. I can barely hear the stories about the cat. So this is called high-rise syndrome, where pets fall or jump. Most of the time it's a fall from a, a height of over two stories. And the interesting thing that we're going to learn here in a little bit is that many of them survive, like the vast majority. And so I wanted to, instead of opening with like a medical case, I wanted to open with these news stories. And I picked three. Girl, if you Google it, well, I could have put 50, you know? Wow. Like it's... It's more common than you would have ever suspected. So we're going to talk about high-rise syndrome on the podcast today. It's going to be a little bit different of an episode because when an animal is presented after a fall from a height, you don't really have to go through a lot of differentials. It's like, Mm -hmm. yep, they fell out of a 26-story building. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So (laughs) there's not many differentials for that. But we're going to go through this similar to a normal case. But with the extra flair of it being um, not a human interest story, but a pet interest story. And also my favorite thing, which is heartwarming animal stories. <laughs> where Clearly with these, I'm like barely able to handle it. So,
1: so what exactly is high rise syndrome?
0: So the strict definition is the collection of injuries that are often sustained when a pet falls from a great height. And typically we talk about this as being greater than or equal to a two story fall, and two stories is usually about eight meters. Should I look up how many feet eight meters is?
1: That was the question that my brain immediately okay. asked so <laughs> okay I was like, how many up. feet is that?
0: <laughs> there are twenty six point two feet in eight meters, so that's a that's a pretty long way, long way down
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah, so. When we talk about high-rise syndrome, we most often are talking about kitty cats. Mm -hmm. These types of falls happen way more often in cats than they do in dogs. So that's one of the reasons that we talk about mostly cats. Now, there are reports of dogs falling great heights and surviving. Um, There's just less data for us to pull from. I do have some dog data, which we'll kind of talk about as we go. But most of the time, we do think about this as like a cat issue. And that might be for a number of reasons the size and shape of cats, their flexibility, their uh, their ability to quickly reach a cruising speed. (laughs) I don't know, that sounds crazy when we're talking about it. Uh, The terminal velocity, like the famous movie, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Cats reach terminal velocity. Relatively quickly, and are able to sort of cruise control their way down at a leisurely pace or whatever. And so, uh, then also, cats are just more likely to squeeze through small open windows, right? So, like mm-hmm. your dog is probably not going to get through a two or three inch opening in your window, but your damn cat will for sure do that. They're part liquid. That's mm-hmm. why. And uh, then the other thing would be, you know, cats like high places. They like to perch and things like that. Railings. uh, and Yeah. And then one that I would suspect or suggest, but I don't know for sure the data on, we could probably look it up pretty easily, is I think cats are probably a more common apartment pet than dogs, Mm -hmm. just overall.
1: Yeah, and there's probably two people assume that, I can leave this open because they're not stupid enough to go.
0: The cat, yeah. Jumping off. Where you're like with your dog. "Mm." Yeah. (laughs) Maybe we shouldn't chance it. (laughs) Right. Now, when a pet falls from a great height, the velocity of the fall is correlated to injury severity. Okay. And we're going to talk. See, this complicated because there's like some older research that says one thing and it, we're going to get to it, okay. Mm-hmm. But so in general the velocity of the fall and injury severity sort of depend on the body mass of the animal, the distance that they fall and the air resistance at the time of the fall. Other things that might determine how bad of an injury they get would be the type of surface that they land on. That's particularly true for dogs. At least one study in CAT showed that the landing surface, and when I'm saying landing surface, I'm meaning grass, gravel, concrete, mulch, you know, that kind of thing, didn't have as big of an impact on like their overall survival or their major injuries. However, sometimes, and I apologize, y'all, trigger warning, okay? (laughs) Sometimes objects are encountered during the fall. And what I mean by that would be like, spiked fence posts, okay, Mm -hmm. awnings, okay, other things that they hit on the way down. And so if an animal falls and lands on an object upon which they are impaled, and again, y'all, I'm so sorry, but we have to talk about it this way, clearly that is going to dramatically change their prognosis. Mm -hmm. Okay. The Area of the body that impacts first also determines what types of injuries and how severe they are as well. Now in kitty cats, the total distance of the fall does not necessarily directly correlate to the severity of the injury. Some studies show that increasing fall height is correlated with decreased survival. That makes sense, right? Because you're like, well, you fell A larger number of stories, of course, your injuries are going to be worse and you might not live, right? Mm -hmm. And the injury scores are higher for cats falling over seven stories, okay? But some older studies suggest that injury rates actually stop increasing and fewer fractures are noted in cats who fall over seven stories. So that's where the data conflicts. And that's where, like, when I first learned about high rise syndrome in veterinary school, they actually said the, that second thing. They were That's what they taught us. Like, hey, when a cat falls over a certain amount of stories, they have time to write themselves, to get their body correct for impact and things like that. And that is what decreases their chance of death and severe injuries. But just know that that at this point might even be considered like a little bit of an old wives' tale because newer studies have shown that that might not bear out. Mm-hmm. So... The jury is out right now on whether that's 100% true. JJ, have you seen the movie Terminal Velocity? Okay, let's look it up. We're going to look it up. I should have looked it up last night. Okay, Terminal Velocity, the movie about skydiving, came out in 1994. Hey, I graduated from high school. (laughs) Amazing. And it stars Charlie Sheen. And so a lot of people know the term Terminal Velocity from that movie. Except that many of the listeners of our podcast might be too young to know what that movie is. Because it was from 1994.
1: Thanks. Thanks for that, Grater.
0: Sorry. Sure. But, um, so, th- this is from w- the Wikipedia summary. It follows a daredevil skydiver. Charlie Sheen. Mm-hmm. Who was caught up in a criminal plot by Russian mobsters who forced him to team up with a freelance secret agent in order to survive. Nice.
1: What in the red dawn is going on?
0: <laughs> but So let's talk about the idea of terminal velocity. Yeah, so what,
1: what, what is it? Because I haven't seen the movie. So is that like you reach your top falling speed at a certain point and then you don't accelerate anymore?
0: Exactly. Yeah. So terminal velocity is the maximum velocity attainable by an object as it falls through a fluid. A fluid? Yeah, like the air.
1: (laughs) The air is fluid?
0: I think technically air is fluid, yes. (laughs) Interesting. I mean, I know it's definitely sometimes when it's humid out here. Right, yes. Air is the most common example of a fluid through which we fall.
1: I thought it was a gas.
0: Look, JJ. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's
1: been a long time since I have physical science.
0: Is air a fluid or a gas? Google search. Air is made of stuff, air particles (laughs) that are loosely held together in a gas form. Although liquids are the most commonly recognized fluids, gases are also fluids. Since (laughs) air is a gas, it flows and takes the form of its container. So it's both. The fuck? Look, we are getting way outside of... My mind is like... (laughs) I'm like, wait a minute. What happened to the how many
1: the stages of matter? You've got okay, gas, fluid.
0: We're going to end the physics lesson here.
1: That's good. <laughs> and move on. My brain hurts.
0: <laughs> oh, my God.
1: Okay. Do you think it's because they have the extra skin, so they almost kind of flap out like a parachute, like a flying well, squirrel?
0: Sort of, yeah. I mean, they got that primordial pouch going on. Mm-hmm. They absolutely can go. provide a lot of resistance. Right. Okay. Then a raccoon could probably so, fly, too. <laughs> Sorry. Cats cats reach a terminal velocity after falling around five stories. (laughs) When a cat falls less than five stories, we think that they reflexively extend their limbs, leading to the limbs absorbing most of the fall. But once they reach terminal velocity, cats assume a more horizontal position and they flex the limbs, and that might lead to more truncal injuries. So injuries to like the abdomen and the Mm -hmm. thorax. One study showed a decrease in fractures and an increase in thoracic injuries in falls greater than seven stories. So that would tend to bear that out. However, in other studies, there was no correlation between fall height and injury pattern. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot that we don't know about this. Now, when we are dealing with a case of high-rise syndrome... There is a really wide range of potential injuries, right? So when you're seeing them in the clinic, there are a lot of different types of things that you might need to do depending on the types of injuries that they have. JJ, can you guess what the single most important first thing that we should do is when one of these kitties comes in?
1: Um, Well, my first thought would be full body x-ray, but
0: I feel like (laughs) make sure
1: they're stable and You know, they can breathe and
0: feel. A physical exam. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, a physical exam is the most important part, right? Because we don't know some of these cats like Sugar, who we talked about earlier, was (laughs) just like, bay, and walked away without much issue. She's
1: like, that's right, bitches, I flew. That's right.
0: So... If we're thinking about like an initial database that we want to collect when one of these guys comes in, it's not that different from other types of trauma cases. So we want to tailor it to the needs of the patient and what they're telling you with your eyes and ears and hands, what you can feel and see and sense about the animal that will help guide you. But, you know, the major things, rectal temperature, right? Mm -hmm. Blood pressure, pulse ox. Might need to get an ECG on them and then grab a little blood, run a PCV. If you can run a lactate, maybe run a lactate, run a blood sugar. And then if you're someplace where you can get venous blood gases, that would be great. Helps you know like how they're doing metabolically. And then you might need to, of course, evaluate those sort of serially throughout the treatment process, just as you would in any type of a traumatic injury So what are the
1: most common injuries that you see with high-rise syndrome?
0: Well, it can really be anything, but there's a very clear pattern. Most high-rise syndrome patients have head, thorax, and extremity injuries. That's kind of the big three. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense based on what we just talked about, about how cats fall and land. When you're evaluating the patient, some things like limb injuries, extremity injuries, you might notice right away. But as in all trauma patients, you really want to focus on internal injuries first because we can fix a broken leg down the road. But if we got a collapsed lung, we need to handle that like right now. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about kind of the general approach to these patients and what you do when they come in. So first off, they might be in shock. hmm. Now, we could have a whole episode on shock management. It's um, There's a lot of information to look at there, but basically you're just going to know these patients could be in shock and it could be a, a distributive shock. They might have hemorrhaged a lot, just depending on what sorts of tissue damage that they have. And if they have a collapsed lung or other thoracic injuries, they might be hypoxic. So treating them based on the type of shock that they're uh, that they have and the types of injuries they have is the still the most important thing signs of shock would be if they have a dolmentation their por- pulse quality isn't good and if they have pale mucous membranes and then in kitty cats hypothermia low body temperature at the time of presentation was associated with shock and more mm-hmm. perfusion so, if you have a cat with a high-rise syndrome that comes in with a low temp, you need to just treat that cat like it's in shock right away.
1: Mm-hmm. What type of respiratory
0: injuries do you see? The main thing is that it's variable, right? Mm-hmm. You can see anything from a cat that's sitting there looking pretty normal all the way up to severe dyspnea, my least favorite thing in the entire world, as we have established.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, um a lot of people might think about like a diaphragmatic hernia, right? That's mm-hmm. the tear of the muscle between the abdomen and the thorax. That's actually kind of uncommon as a result of high-rise syndrome. I mean, you can see it, but uh it only occurs in around two percent of the cases in kitty cats. Pneumothorax or collapsed lung was more common. And then hemothorax, which would be blood in the thorax, uh, was was way more common. And then You might find, like, rib fractures. And so as you're doing your physical exam and you're palpating, if you encounter areas of pain or crepitus there, then we can suspect that the patient has rib fractures.
1: And what about injuries to the face and the head?
0: So... Uh, these are really common. They're one of the the big three signs like we talked about. Mm-hmm. And in studies of high syndrome in cats and dogs, about 67% of patients end up with some sort of facial or injury or head injury. This might, again, include anything that you would see with trauma. So facial swelling, wounds, abrasions. You might see bleeding from the nose. You want to really carefully evaluate them for any sort of instability in the maxilla or mandible. A classic example in a cat is like, it looks like the cat is just mm-hmm. kind of <laughs> off center. You know, mm-hmm. my voice is weird because I'm doing my jaw to the side, which JJ can see, but you guys can't. <laughs> but so like, a, it's like their mouths is just like slightly off, you know, like yep. it doesn't click together just right anymore. Sometimes the mouth will be slightly open like it's stuck open because of a physical impingement. They can't close the jaw anymore because of a fracture. We might also see things like dental fractures. That could be a true fracture. It could be uh, avold or displaced teeth, and the teeth might look like they're missing but secretly be broken off under the gum line. And then wounds of the hard or soft palate. So some of these kitty cats stain pretty gnarly cleft palate lesions from hitting Mm -hmm. um, that have to be surgically managed later. And then lastly, injury to the eyes or hemorrhage inside the eyes might be present. And if it's severe enough, blindness can result from these injuries.
1: Hmm. So you didn't really uh, mention it, but um, it seems like it's pretty common with people. Do they get brain injuries or traumatic brain injuries?
0: So, of course, brain injury can result from a great fall like this, but it's actually not that common overall in high-rise syndrome patients. So really severe brain injuries in dogs and cats with high-rise syndrome are, are not common compared to people. When people fall from a great height, it's very common to have brain injuries. Big old cranium. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, now, as far as percentages, about 7% of cats with high-rise syndrome end up having severe brain injuries. So that's Not very many, really. Mm -hmm. That's not a big percentage. Um, Now, of course, you should always do a thorough neurologic exam when you can. Neurologic exam, though, might have to wait a smidge because if you're triaging the patient and just trying to keep them hemodynamically stable, neurologic evaluation has to kind of wait a bit. (laughs) But once they are stable, you should do a full neurologic exam and then reassess that. Because as things change, as things swell, you might see the emergence of neurologic signs that either weren't present initially or weren't appreciable initially because so much else was going on.
1: And what type of abdominal injuries are seen?
0: Well, so there can be a few really big ones. Luckily, it's much less common to see abdominal injuries than it it is thoracic injuries in this type of issue. Because when we see abdominal injuries, they are often super bad. (laughs) So so super bad shit. So signs of abdominal trauma, we might see pain on palpation. You might find a body wall defect, like there's been a traumatic hernia. You might see blood in the urine. You might find fluid in the abdomen, a peritoneal effusion, when you are looking with your ultrasound machine, Mm -hmm. you know, like we like to do for every case. (laughs) So uh, traumatic abdominal injuries are only seen in like maybe 17% of cats. In some studies, it's as low as 1% of cats with high-rise syndrome. And there's sort of a range of things that you can see. So bleeding into the abdomen, right? And that could be laceration of any kind of major vessel, but the big one would be if the spleen has suffered severe injuries and, and ruptured. The other thing that you can see is a uroabdomen where urine is collecting the abdomen from rupture of the bladder Mm -hmm. or actually rupture of really any part of the urinary tract might create that. And particularly uroabdomen might not be evident right away. Mm -hmm. So that's why that serial look, that repeated look with the ultrasound probe is important because they might not have fluid in their abdomen yet when they get there, maybe they Peed right before they fell out the window or whatever. <laughs> but over time, then that can come. Now, one thing that I read about that I thought was really interesting was pancreatic rupture, hmm. which I w- would not have thought that that was a thing that could rupture. But I guess anything can rupture. But yes, it wasn't absolutely. on my radar is what I'm saying. <laughs> so um, pancreatic rupture and traumatic pancreatitis, which I have fucking never heard of and was super like, interested in right off the bat, like, what the fuck? Now, those are rare, okay? They're rare, but when they happen, it's real bad. We can get really bad systemic inflammation that leads to multi organ failure and death. No. Okay. And the other uncool thing about pancreatic rupture is similar to rupture of the urinary system, it might not be detectable right away. You might not be able to see those changes for a couple of days after the patient has been hospitalized.
1: So the one that, you know, most people think would be a problem, what about like skeletal fractures, fractured legs?
0: Yeah. Broken back. bones. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about extremities first. So it is pretty common. About 50% of animals with high syndrome have at least one skeletal fracture or ligament injury uh, that they sustain during the fall. What are we looking for on physical exam? Well, you might see pet with lameness. You might see a pet that can't walk at all. Okay, mm-hmm. you might see pain elicited on palpation of the affected site. And diagnosis, you might need to delay that until we stabilize the patient. Right? Just to, just like any trauma patient, any hit by car or anything like that, you can be like, I think the leg's broken but we need to fix the other shit first, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. So... Criage, so, so, Yeah, super, super common. We fell off a multiple story building. Yep, we probably have some sort of a fracture, but let's fix the other shit first. Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned spinal injuries, like spinal fractures. So let's talk about that. So luckily less common than injuries to the extremities, okay? So spinal injuries are found somewhere between 2 to 13% of cats with high-rise syndrome. So that's kind of low. That's, mm-hmm. that's good. Now, the clinical signs of spinal injuries sort of mimic orthopedic injuries. So you might not be able to tell right away until you have a chance to get your diagnostics. You might see the patients not be able to move a leg or multiple legs. They might be ataxic, and they might have other noticeable neurologic deficits. The clinical signs are, of course, going to be dependent on the lesion location. So where along the spinal column did the patient receive the injury? That's going to be a big deal. You definitely want to do a full neurologic exam as soon as the patient is stable, because things like really bad spinal injuries might change how the owner wants to proceed with the case, so they would definitely affect the prognosis and the potential financial result of the case mm-hmm. and so it's one of those things where you kind of have to balance keeping the patient alive and stable with collecting information that might say that might tell the owner we need to push the the stop button. Mm-hmm but luckily not as common as you would think.
1: So what type of uh, diagnostics would you
0: run once the patient's stable? Well, that is a great question. And again, one that depends on sort of what you see going on with the patient. But I think that there are some big categories that I'm going to want to do on pretty much every single patient that Mm -hmm. we're seeing come in with this. So you know, the first one is blood work. Mm-hmm. And when I was researching the case, I was like, oh, some blood work blood work. You know, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> we know what the fuck happened, like, or whatever. You know, why would we run blood work? And, and the main things are going to be, you know, on something like a CBC to see how anemic the patient is. Do we see evidence that we have, like, an ongoing bleed or something like that? Do we see evidence that we're going to need blood products? And then with a biochemistry profile, you might see some significant changes just from the trauma of the fall, and those include liver enzyme elevations, azotemia, um, altered protein levels, like really low protein level, depending on how everything is doing in there. And then if the patient has suffered pancreatic trauma, you might see an elevated felon specific lipase or canine specific lipase you might want to run a pancreatitis test mm. which i was like what like, <laughs> like if someone if someone came up to me and was like hey i ran a pancreatitis test on your trauma patient i would have been like what the shit are you doing but apparently that is actually yeah <laughs> something i mean like, that we should do
1: aside from trauma to the pancreas itself i mean i guess there's some animals that can get pancreatitis just from stress alone.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think anything can make the pancreas mad. Yeah, it's It's very... It's a little bitch. It is a little bitch. JJ, (laughs) yes, you're correct. Lab work-wise, the other big thing we would be thinking about is running a coagulation profile, and that would include thromboelastography because we can use it to rule out like coagulopathy of trauma, and when we had The emergency critical care specialist, Dr. Nobles, on the podcast at the end of last season, she talked about that a little bit. Mm -hmm. So like your patient is super unstable, you're pushing crystalloid fluids, you're trying to get it, you know, it's blood pressure up, you're trying to get it out of shock, but it's also lost a lot of blood. Mm -hmm. And so now you have diluted the blood that's still there and you've diluted all the clotting factors and now they can't clot on their own anymore. And Mm -hmm. so that's why you would want to run, run clotting times on them. Makes sense. Yeah. Then the next big one, radiographs. Mm-hmm. So you said earlier, like, radiograph the whole animal. And it's like, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this,
1: I mean, especially with cats. <laughs> like, especially just Especially with cats. Just delicately place them upon the table and start right. hitting that button.
0: Yeah. And I'm going to say my policy on this is maybe not approved by radiologists, <laughs> but I am a, uh, I am a, Place the cat on the table. How it's comfortable, and take a fucking shot. Because that, although we need to remember that 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 is not a perfectly placed X-ray, we might miss some things. We can definitely see some shit that might give us a boost into what we need to do, mm-hmm. and come back and take the super ultra perfect textbook X-rays when the pet's not trying to die on me right this second, right? Exactly. Um, so. Imaging of the thorax, every patient, even if they're not uh, having dyspnea or anything, they all high-rise syndrome patients really need this, especially because kitty cats can sometimes look completely fine <laughs> despite mm-hmm. having really bad thoracic injuries. Mm-hmm. Like So an absence of dyspnea doesn't rule out thoracic trauma that they've sustained in this situation, okay? Uh, now, if you are seeing a severely dyspneic patient, just like we talked about in our heart failure episode, do not fucking radiograph that animal, okay? Mm-hmm. No, no, we are waiting till the patient is stable to take the radiographs, okay? Now, orthopedic radiographs we might need, intraoral dental radiographs we might need. Mm-hmm. Those need to fucking wait until we get a stable patient, okay? orthopedic rads often require some level of sedation, if not full sedation. And then obviously dental radiographs require generally anesthesia. So we might do an initial evaluation, see a fractured tooth. Maybe we see a broken jaw or a palate injury or something like that. We need to keep that in the back of our mind, but we need to Avoid the impulse to schedule that for like the next day or right away because we might have secret other shit happening that's way more damaging to the pet's life than the dental fracture, which can weigh this smidge, mm-hmm. wait this smidge of time. Dental x-ray. I just want to step up onto my dental x-ray soapbox for a second. These are required for dental fractures, missing teeth, fractures of the mandible, maxilla or palate. Skull rads. Throw them in the trash can. They suck. Okay. (laughs) You need intraoral radiographs to diagnose and manage those. I am now off the soapbox again. Okay. That brings us to our favorite test that we talk about all the time, JJ.
1: Ultrasound. Ultrasound.
0: So these patients are a fucking great candidate for the bedside ultrasound exam where we're going to look at the tummy and the chest and we're going to be like, what the fuck is going on in here, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's way less stress. They can continue to sit sternally. You just shave them, slap a little bit of alcohol on there, but okay, real easy. It is in no way traumatic. It is in no way invasive and it does not require any type of sedation or anesthesia. And it can give us all sorts of info. Okay, so if you're looking with the AFAST in the abdomen and you're seeing fluid, then we're going to tap it, right? Mm -hmm. And then what fluid it is is going to tell us what we need to do, right? Same thing with the thorax, okay? Although, I mean, if you're getting fluid out of the thorax in one of these patients, it's going to be blood. Okay, (laughs) Okay, it's going to be blood. Surprise. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it can also tell us about a pneumothorax, right? Collapsed lung and can help us uh, know when we need to go ahead and do thoracocentesis. Advanced imaging, CT scan, things like that, sure, might be needed. Again, not for like the trauma emergency triage situation because it requires general anesthesia. Mm -hmm. So you might ultimately have to go to CT on some sort of a big thing, but that's not going to be in like our ER trauma triage workup situation here. And then lastly, my least favorite test that we've talked about a lot blind thoracocentesis is sometimes necessary so if you have a cat come in you know it's fallen off of a fucking multi-story building and it's dyspneic chances are the answer to that problem is going to be to stick a needle in the chest okay so if it's an if it's coming in it's starting to crash it cannot breathe you might have to go in blind on it, okay? But look, most of the time, if you have an ultrasound machine, that adds, what, 30 seconds? So I probably would look with ultrasound. I wouldn't but either you. way, what are we going to find that's not removable with a needle? <laughs> mm-hmm. <Ooh. laughs> you know, it's a, oh, it's a tough one. So anyway, mm-hmm. so yeah, blind thoracocentesis, this is one of those situations, even though you know I fucking hate that, mm-hmm. this is one of those situations where I would be like, We got to do it. Here we go. And we would do both sides and, um, you know, see what we get. Air or blood is probably what we're going to (laughs) find. I know. Definitely. (laughs) Definitely a scared noise moment, JJ. (laughs) Like, for sure.
1: Mm -hmm. For
0: sure. Okay.
1: Where is this happening?
0: Geographically, you mean? Yeah. So geographically, it's going to be mostly in cities because that's where you're going to have a high concentration of, like, tall apartment buildings. That being said, I mean, a cat can fall off of any fucking situation, <laughs> okay? Mm-hmm. But the classic high-rise syndrome case, as we read in the multiple examples at the top of the episode, is a cat being like, woo, out of a window of a tall apartment building and where are tall apartment buildings located, urban areas. Mm-hmm. So most of the time it's urban areas. As far as, like, the type of patient that this happens to we talked about how cats are overrepresented compared to dogs all ages of animal can be included in this okay remember at the top of this we had young animals we also had the fucking 16 year old cat which i was like what the fuck that's crazy so all ages but it's way more common in young animals and we think this is because you know, that they're kind of more curious and they want to explore things and they're kind of ridiculous. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know if y'all have had a kitten in a while, but they are like crazy. Every time I get a kitten, I'm like, how did I forget mm-hmm. that this is like putting a velociraptor in your house? Like, mm-hmm. they're nuts. We see it more often in sexually intact animals. uh, We think, you know, because of the increased desire to roam. And then it happens more often in warmer months because that's when people open their windows, JJ. Mm-hmm. Yep. So people open the windows for ventilation and then the cat squeezes through. And I saw reports of cats like getting through even two inch openings in windows. So if you're going to crack your window at all, it really needs to be like less than one inch or like you just need a screen. Mm -hmm. Although my fat ass cats, like I just don't open my windows at all because I know that their dumb asses would be like, woo, you know, Mm -hmm. like they would just bust through a screen.
1: Yeah, and I had a cat that wasn't, she was a regular, normal-sized cat, and she was sleeping, mm-hmm. and just the pressure she was putting on the screen, it popped out. Popped it out. And she'd never been outside a day in her life, other than in a carrier, so she hugged the side of the house and screamed for
0: oh, hours baby. until somebody Aww. found her. Oh, no. Because I wasn't home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, like, I think, let's just not leave your windows open.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't do it anymore mm-hmm. after that.
0: Yeah, let's not do that.
1: So how are these patients treated?
0: Like we have already said a few times, sort of depends on what kind of shit they got going on. Obviously, this is a triage situation, okay? Mm -hmm. Where you treat the most serious uh, life-threatening injuries first. Your basic patient is going to need some, like, oxygen, (laughs) you know, like Mm -hmm. an IV catheter right away. You're going to want to listen to them real good, make sure that they don't need, uh, you know, the... Real quick thoracocentesis or something like that going on. Some of these patients might need to be intubated if uh, there has been significant damage to the airway and they're no longer patent. And then they need to be managed for their pain and stress because. I don't know about you, but if I fell 26 stories onto a balcony, I would probably be a little bit stressed out. Mm -hmm. So minimizing the amount of stress that we put the animals through is going to be important as well. We already talked about considering immediate thoracocentesis in this kind of a case. Anytime they're severely dyspneic, you might just go right ahead. Okay, And then they're going to need treatment for shock. So crystalloid fluids, maybe a colloid maybe blood products, depending on how much blood loss they've had, their PCV, their clotting times, all of those things are going to make a difference. And then then we have a slight issue with the high incidence of pulmonary contusions in these patients, but we're having to give them shock rate fluids. Mm. And so then that can create leaky spots in the lungs. And then they can, unfortunately, uh, develop hypoxemia because of fluid extravasation from the pulmonary contusion. So what I'm going to say is you have to use fluid therapy judiciously in Mm -hmm. the patients. Now, let's see here. Traumatic brain injuries. Uh, You might need to give them mannitol. um, Some sort of hyperosmolar solution, maybe hypertonic saline, depending on what you stock at your clinic. Hypertonic saline has the benefit of improving perfusion in patients with polytrauma or multiple traumatic injuries. So um, I would think about hypertonic saline in these patients, particularly if the blood pressure is shit. Though. Mm. Now, once you stabilize the patient, then you can worry about all the other bullshit, like their broken bone, their broken tooth, you know, all of that stuff. OK, mm-hmm. if they have a uroabdomen, obviously they're going to have to have surgery eventually. But you can manage that initially by just placing an, an abdominal drain till you get ready to do the surgery. Uh, and then, of course, orthopedic dentistry stuff, all of that stuff, surgery-wise, is delayed significantly mm-hmm. until the patient is super-duper stable. <laughs> uh, now, we mentioned hard palate fractures in cats, um, almost like a cleft palate that they develop as a result of these injuries. These can be a bitch, okay? I want you guys to hear me when I say this. (laughs) This needs to be referred to a dentist, okay? These uh, are notoriously difficult things to repair. Sometimes they need multiple surgeries. And if you treat it medically, you have the potential to develop an oronasal fistula. And once that happens, that's even more difficult. So you're going to look in the literature, you're going to be like, well, sometimes cats have healed well with medical management, you know, so there's a little bit of a controversy. I'm telling you to take it to the dentist right away, okay, (laughs) because these can be real bears. And um, this is one thing where prompt surgical intervention can really make a big quality of life difference long term um, in the kidney.
1: So what's the prognosis for these guys?
0: Well, this is going to sound crazy, but it's actually really good. (laughs) That's why we have so many survival stories to read at the top of the episode, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the prognosis is considered good. Mortality is only like between 6 and 17% of cases. Hmm. And that includes patients that are euthanized for like financial reasons and that kind of thing. Wow. So including the patients that are euthanized after being presented to the clinic. Only like 17% was the top one. Like, that's, I would have thought, like, if you just said, hey, what is a cat's chances of surviving jumping off this thing that's several stories in the air? I would have been like, I don't know, for survival, 10%, you know, or whatever. But it's actually the opposite, 90% survival. Okay. And multiple studies have shown survival rates equal to and greater than 90% in multiple retrospective studies that look at collections of cases in different time periods. So this is really impressive.
1: Might be something to that non-love thing after <laughs>
0: Exactly, all. right? Okay. So I'm going to throw some statistics at you here for a second. In two separate studies, survival rates of 100% were reported in cats who survived the first 36 hours of hospitalization
1: how do, you, how do you conduct these studies? People ain't throwing cats off a building, are they?
0: Uh, no. No, no, no. no. <laughs> what you would do is look at, uh, you would collect information from all cats who presented to different hospitals for this reason and systematically look at how every single one of those cases went and then run the statistics on them. That's good. It is called a retrospective study.
1: Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, Okay. Uh, the duration of hospitalization, meaning how long we expect them to be in the hospital, obviously is dependent significantly on what all they got going on. But the ones that are going to need a surgery have to stay in the hospital longer. A lot of these animals are like re- released the next day or like within forty-eight hours. It's really impressive. Wow. Prognosis wise, most studies do demonstrate that the severity of injuries is proportional to the number of floors fallen. We talked earlier about that one study that was a really early study that showed that it decreased over a certain height, but that's not, you know, we're not 100% sure because additional studies have not shown that. Cats with high-rise syndrome that present with thoracic injuries and shock tend to have a worse prognosis. And then the presence of hypothermia at intake we talked about was associated with the presence of shock already. But it does also come with a higher chance of death. So if the kitties are cold, that's not a good prognostic indicator. Lastly, the presence of abdominal injuries in HRS cats, sorry, in high rise syndrome cats is a negative prognostic indicator. Partly because we talked about how shitty those abdominal injuries are Mm -hmm. in the smaller percentage of patients that get them. They are shitty. Mortality rates in patients with abdominal injuries are two and a half times higher than those without abdominal injuries. Mm. The landing surface we talked about earlier, grass, mulch, whatever, has not been shown to be a difference for cats. But it does make a difference for dogs mortality wise, with obviously harder landing surfaces for dogs resulting in worse outcomes. Mm -hmm. And then we talked about landing on to objects is uncool. And it it is associated with more severe wounds that obviously from being impaled. Yeah. I'm so sorry about that. (laughs) Now, I thought it would be interesting to look at a couple of different studies like over the years how things have changed. So let me see if we have time. We have a smidge of time, JJ. A smidge. Where I would like to kind of just Read to you statistics from three major studies. Okay. These are all studies of kitties.
1: Is it bad that this entire time I believe I can fly is on a repeat
0: in my head? <laughs> what the fuck? I guess that'll be the episode title. <laughs> I believe I can fly. Think about it. Every day. Shit, is that thunder? Yeah, it was supposed to. Okay. Well, we got to get our act together and finish the episode then. And stop singing 90s R&B songs.
1: Especially if it's disgusting R. Kelly.
0: Okay. The first study that I would like to talk to you about is an OG classic study from 1987, girl. <laughs> okay. This study is called High Rise Syndrome in Cats. I love it. Classic. <laughs> clean. And it was published in JAVMA, December 1987. In this study, they looked at 132 cases of high-rise syndrome in cats. I need to tell you that the span of those cases was only five months. Wow. So in five damn months, 132 damn cats had this happen to them. Now, that is... More common than I would have guessed.
1: Where, I mean, is this all in like one central location? I, this, or? I
0: think, was in New York City. Okay. I think it was New York I, City.
1: I, I can believe that because there's a lot of
0: people in I a lot mean, of buildings. Do, do not quote me on that, but when I was reading the study earlier, I want to say it was New York City. I did not New write that New York part down. City. New York City. Sorry. <laughs> no one is going to know what we're talking about either. This is paste sauce, okay? Look it up. Um, The mean age of cats was 2.7 years. So again, young cats. Mm -hmm. In this study, 90% of cats had some form of thoracic trauma. So the level of thoracic injury is very high. The most common were pulmonary contusions at 68%. And 63% had a pneumothorax. Mm -hmm. That's pretty high. But only 55% of the cats showed that they had respiratory signs at intake. <laughs> so, <laughs> there's your subset of cats that are like, I'm all right. Everything's fine. 24% of them presented in shock. 18% of them had traumatic luxations. And 17% had that hard palate fracture that we talked about. 37% of the cats required emergency treatment. Only 37%! Sorry. Non-emergency treatment was required in in 30% of the cats and the remaining 30%-ish were observed but did not require any treatment at all. What the fuck? And the survival rate was 90% of the cats. Wow. So that is like your OG high-rise syndrome study that every single paper that you read on high-rise syndrome quotes the study. So like I just read to you the information from the abstract of that like og paper Mm -hmm. amazing jj is less (laughs) excited about this than me i can tell already look it's hard being a super nerd okay it's difficult okay next we've got a paper from 2001 called high-rise syndrome in cats 207 cases okay They at least didn't collect them in fucking five months or whatever. (laughs) This was over a 10-year span. 1988 to 1998. Okay. So they looked at records, again, of 207 cats. Cats fell from the height of the second to the eighth floor. Okay. So these were, like, low to moderate falls when compared to fucking 26 stories that we talked about earlier the mean age 1.2 years so again young cats mm-hmm. 17% of them were in shock the new thorax was only in 4% and pulmonary contusions in 7% so that's very interesting that those those levels of thoracic injury are much lower than in the OG study
1: we're building better cats
0: i don't know i think that these might be low to moderate falls and in that OG, st- oh girl, I forgot if I could tell you the most insane part of the OG paper. One of the things was a 31 story fall. <laughs> so it was like, if you read the study, and I had to use the abstract because when I requested the interlibrary loan thing, it's still pending for whatever reason. So I haven't been able to be issued a physical copy of the study to look at yet. I know that sounds insane, but So I'll make any revisions to this episode after, you know, I read it. But from other people's summaries of it, I can tell you that one of the cats in that study fell 31 stories. So I'm just going to go ahead and go out on a limb and hypothesize that this updated study might not (laughs) include falls of such a magnitude as the other (laughs) one. (laughs)
1: Anyway, spread your wings and fly.
0: Right. Okay, we're serious. Limb fractures were seen in 50% of these uh, kitties. Spinal fractures or luxation, only 10%, not too bad. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then the split hard palate, only 3%, which is significantly different from that first one that I read to you. Okay. In this study, the height from which the cats fell was directly correlated to the total number of injuries sustained. Mm. Okay. And then I'm going to read to you from one other study. (laughs) Okay. This one is a 2004 study of 119 cases. Again, not over five months, luckily. (laughs) 1998 to 2001. They, they're saying in the study a four-year period, okay? So high-rise syndrome in 119 cats over a four-year period, 59.6% of cats were younger than one year. So again, a correlation with young cats. Uh, the average height of the fall was four stories. That's so crazy. Four stories is a long fucking way. That is a long way to go. High-rise syndrome was found to be more frequent during the warmer periods of the year. of the presented cats survived after the fall. 46% had limb fractures. Thoracic trauma was diagnosed in 33% of cats, more like the first study that we talked about. Mm -hmm. And pneumothorax was diagnosed in 20% of the cats. Pulmonary contusions in 13%. Kind of different from both of them. Falls from the seventh or higher stories are associated with more severe injuries and with a higher incidence of thoracic trauma. <laughs> and that is literally everything that I have to tell you about feline <laughs> high-rise syndrome, which is good because we are going to be slightly over time. <laughs> <laughs> Heck, um, I am so excited about that topic because I think because it combines heartwarming animal stories with medicine, JJ, I think that's mm-hmm. why.
1: Is there an, any particular reason that you know of why it like affects you emotionally?
0: Oh, I think I'm just a uh, have a creamy center, like a <clears throat> like a nougat center. I got a hard candy shell, but the the center is <laughs> soft. <laughs> uh, why? I don't know. Um, you know how uh, we both listen to my favorite murder. Okay, <laughs> you know how. Sometimes Karen, who is like I think of, of course I don't know Karen Kilgareth, like I wish I did. I feel like I do, right? I think she's yeah. awesome. I think of Karen as like a like a sarcastic she's um, generation X all the way. Definitely very dark humor. I think about her as like being most comfortable wearing black, you know, goth before Goth was mainstream type of a personality, right? And most people would not think that she is like a softy about stuff. And yet she often gets choked up on the podcast when they read heartwarming stories. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, I think it's that type of thing. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes things just get me and it's hard for me to talk about without crying Mm -hmm. about it. Yeah. And so that's the best I think I can explain it. It's like, Oh, I I don't know how to explain it other than maybe to tell you some of the other things that always choke me up and why I like human interest stories so much. I think they're so interesting. So one other thing would be like Pampers ran these ads that was all mom animals Mm. taking care of baby animals. Okay, just emotional breakdown every time (laughs) I saw the commercial. I hear you. Okay, stories. I'm not even, I can't even talk about it without getting choked up. Stories about athletes, people that have all this drive and passion and they've worked so hard, rah, like to get to this thing and they finally achieve it. Complete, mm-hmm. complete emotional breakdown, especially if it's like, it's the Olympics and they won and they showed the mom and the audience and the mom's like,
1: yeah. Ah. Yeah. I had something like that recently because I was listening to sean white on Dak shepherd's podcast Mm -hmm. and he was talking about how you know he had won a couple of gold medals in the olympics and then he had kind of like lost his love for the sport and then um he also had a really bad uh injury oh yeah a really bad facial injury Mm -hmm. and he had to come back from that and so he kind of took time away to follow some other interests and then kind of learned to fall back in love with the sport again yeah. and went back and did with the loops and he'd had to do the same uh, maneuver where he had gotten his injury and things just came together just perfectly. And he landed everything exactly how he was supposed to do it. And he was talking about how that he, every time he said, he's not, I'm not usually one that get emotional about stuff, but that particular win, because of everything that I had to go through to get back to that point again, and then he um, said, because I was losing whenever I went up for that last run. Yeah. I was in second place. And he said that it, I went and watched the video of it. And he's like, he said, he, like he said in the thing, he's like, I was all like excited. But like, did, was it enough until I got the score? And then he said, I just like busted out crying. And I was watching it. I was like.
0: <laughs> right. Right. I think it's like on the cat side of things, it's like you would think that that is a low chance of making it.
1: Mm hmm yeah
0: and maybe like there's an element of me really i'm i'm definitely a somebody who's like rooting for the underdog type of person like that really gets me so exactly so i think that's why plus i just love kitties (laughs) you know (laughs) anyway So, thank you for hanging uh, with us through this episode where we had to talk to you about animals being impaled on fucking fences and, like, your most horrible horror movie situations. Um, But now you know all about high-rise syndrome in cats and how to treat it. And they can fly. They believe they can.
1: (laughs) Maybe that's all it takes to have the 90% survival rate.
0: (laughs) Maybe so. If you have stories, questions, cases, or anything else you'd like for us to read, please send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com.
1: You can find us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram,
0: and it's at introvets. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. Yes, please. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.